This is a Chronicle podcast. This is the history of the greatest of all man-made events. These men are part of that history. They are eyewitnesses to the triumphs and tragedies of the war wherever it was fought. Their testimony is part of the story of how our world was made. By those who could pay, and those who could no longer meet. The Price of Empire. Welcome to Chronicle's History Making Podcast, where we go behind the scenes of what it takes to make history documentaries. My name is Dan Jobson, I'm a director and filmmaker, and I'm here again with Michael Cove, creator, writer, and narrator of The Price of Empire. Now in this episode, we're gonna cover two major milestones, the vast Operation Barbarossa and the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, famously coined the Day of Infamy. Did you find that the tone of the show helped influence those, the smaller and the lesser known events that you chose, or was it the other way around, that as you came across things that they sort of affect, you know, the, the tone and the storytelling? I think the tone is necessarily affected by one's reaction to certain events, and there are some things which are, you know, they're, they're significant moments, but they're moments of folly and sometimes even comical moments. There are moments of high drama, and there are moments of absolute tragedy, and there are moments of infamy. In a major, an event, well, described as the largest man-made event in history, in an event like the Second World War, it's inevitable that there should be quite a substantial range of events in terms of how do you assess their gravity, how do you assess their significance, how do you assess their terror, or whatever it might be. And I think that just comes through in the way in which you as an individual respond to learning about them and and then uh, reporting on that, as it were. Well, let's get into Operation Barbarossa. Now, Barbarossa takes its name from the legend of Frederick Barbarossa. Now, The legacy of Frederick and this notion that he would one day rise from a cave, unify Germany and bring back about German greatness. How well do you think that myth and symbology was known at the time? It's typical of the sorts of illustrative, partly factual, partly imagined moments from their past, which were real drivers in terms of... The, the, the Nazi, I, I won't say philosophy because that would be flattering their rather foolish <laughs> collection of, of myths and ideas, but, but the whole Nazi premise, if you like, mm-hmm. was based on restoration rather than any sort of revolutionary idea. In right. fact, the idea of anything revolutionary was complete anathema. In this episode, there's seven different Red Army veterans that appear, and they all seemed like very young boys at the start. All their stories were that they were 16 or younger when they first heard Stalin and and Molotov come over the radio. Yeah, they were, unlike in the the US and in the UK, uh, I interviewed 
uh, veterans who had been in the armed forces before war began. I didn't interview anybody. I want, I'm not aware of any of the people I interviewed in Russia having been in that position. They were all either at school or apprentices or whatever. Soon um, to be farmers, yeah, as one of them yeah, puts it. That's yeah. right. So they were um, in their teens, I think maybe early 20s, a couple of them, but they, they were young men and they weren't in the armed forces and their more came. I'll just tell you firstly, because it, it's an example, it is the best example of luck being on my side for the production of that program because I had no uh, luck in getting either by research on my part or through the embassy any contact to the people, sorts of people that I wanted to interview. And I was reading, you know, I mean, lots of books, and sadly, because I'd like to give someone some credit, but sadly I can't remember which book it was, but in one book that I was reading, the acknowledgments included the acknowledging the very helpful Three Whales tours in Moscow, who had organized this particular author's battlefield tours. So I looked up Three Whales tours. And Three I, Whales is the in Moscow, name of the company? Three Whales, as in, you know, Whales at Sea, not as in Welsh. <laughs> They're a company in Moscow. And I looked them up and I sent an email and said, well, I don't want to go on a tour. This is what I need. Can you help me with this? And I got an email back from Oleg and he said, yep, that's the sort I can do that. And my goodness me, he certainly could because I arrived in Moscow. He met me at the airport. And from that moment on, I was in his hands and every morning he would pick me up at the hotel and take me to some part of Moscow or a couple of occasions a fair way out of Moscow. And there were these people all waiting, many of them in their uniforms, all of them with their medals. And he'd set the whole thing up. So I was really lucky. Serendipitously got in there. Yeah. And and, uh, he wasn't wasn't a sort of, as we call in our business, as you know, a fixer. He hadn't done that sort of thing before. Quite literally a tour guide. And and he's a one-man operator as well. This is not a big tour company. He was one whale. And he was, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so I was really lucky. And he, he set up all these interviews. And obviously, I think there wasn't a single person who appears in the program who spoke anything other than Russian. So I was entirely in his hands and briefed him. And, you know, we, we had a dialogue going to get the interviews, but he conducted them. As, and were you uh, sitting alongside oh, yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. then he would occasionally turn to me and say, he talked about this and did what he want. Or I would then, he'd say, well, you know, he's finished. And I'd say, well, did he mention this? Or did he, did he talk about what he was doing when the war, when he first heard about well, whatever? Were these interviews in Moscow, were they all in their personal homes? Were they in veterans? Were they in, did you have studios? One, which I will tell you about, was where about in an hour, maybe more, maybe the best part of two hours out of Moscow. So we, we drive this long distance out of Moscow and we arrived at a, what we would call an aged care facility, but quite modern, quite grand looking, Okay. And we get shown into this room, which is like a huge dining room, except it's been cleared. And there's one table which is groaning with food. And at the end of the room are two cameramen, nothing to do with me. Okay. They're, they're there 
to <clears throat> record for local television, I assume. It never was clear, as you'll discover. Yeah. The fact that these, these, this person had come from Australia to interview someone. And at the, they were there they to were film there to you. They were there to film me interviewing someone for wow. their local news. Okay. Right? And the person I was interviewing was this magnificent-looking gentleman with you know, silver hair and a silver beard. He was in his uniform, and he had some sort of a grand cross hanging round his neck and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so we were all set up, and, and I put onto the table the release form. Now, for those who don't know, we necessarily get everybody we interview to sign a release saying that the interview that they have conducted, they understand what it's for and we have their permission to use it in the program. And everybody signs. I had them produced, prepared in all of the languages so it was in Russian. Anyway, this woman took the copy of the release and she went and we started to set our camera up and to talk to this magnificent looking chap in his uniform. And giant cross. Yep. And then the woman came back and called Oleg. And Oleg went out and Oleg came back and said, right, pack up. We've got to go. Oh, no. <laughs> without, without conducting the interview. Because the woman had, had decided that this man... Should, and she was obviously the head of the, the head of the facility. Yeah. He shouldn't sign this thing. But the reason that she had done that, because I said to Oleg, you know, well, I mean, we've just come from interviewing, which was true, the man who had been the last attorney general in the Soviet Union. Wow. He'd ended his career as being like the minister for justice okay. in the Soviet Union. And he signed... He I was said, fine. Tell to... her that. He said, it won't do any good. She's already phoned Moscow. So we Don't just packed up be... and left. So I never, I never found out what this man's story and was. And what that big medal yeah. was for. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> close. Did you get any of the food from the groaning table? Really? Well, and the, two, and the two cameramen from the local news channel had to pack up and go home. They were left without a story yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, so there gee. you go. Well, I hope it was a good two-hour journey back home. <laughs> it was very <laughs> depressing. But, yeah, it was sad. But anyway, that was the only one, I have to say. I mean, you know, everywhere else we went, people were extremely um, happy to tell their story and we, we had no difficulties whatsoever. No, so, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. So can you tell me, were there any moments you remember from all of these interviews in Moscow? Was there any really poignant moments or did you more discover that in the transcripts later on? No, it's interesting because in, I have to say, in in interviews that I conducted in in India, there was an occasion. In the UK, there were maybe one or two occasions in the USA, there were a couple of occasions. In Australia, when I interviewed a South African fellow, there was a very dramatic occasion where the, the, the process of, of recalling and recounting became emotionally unsettling for the speaker. And in, in each of the occasions that I've just reminded myself of there were tears and it, it became very emotional 
there was no such event. Fifteen interviews, I think, in Russia. No one, it seemed to me, ever got close to losing control. It seemed of, far more pragmatic. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I don't know pragmatic. I mean, they were, you know, they were invested in the stories that they were telling. They were telling the stories with feeling, mm-hmm. but uh, but they but they were always in check. I, I don't know whether that's. I, I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. I think one is that they are that they don't feel inhibited about telling the story. The way that they are treated as veterans is different and that's why they wear their uniforms and that's where they wear their medals. So when they're telling their stories, they don't have any doubt that this is a story that people want to hear and should hear and a story that has value. So they don't doubt that. And as a result, I think, which is the second aspect of it, they've told their stories before. Mm. And I very much got the feeling, and in one case in, in Japan, actually the person speaking said as much, but in other cases, I very much got the feeling that these that I was hearing a story that this person had never shared. Right. And it's just for some reason towards the end of their lives, talking to a neutral person who had asked them, they just opened up and they told these stories. And so they weren't rehearsed in they telling were very the story much and raw yeah. and from the heart. Yeah. Yeah. There was one moment with Colonel Zorez Ivanovich Artemov. Apologies for my uh, pronunciation. He was talking about when the first assault on on Moscow uh, was taking place, that there was a decision amongst the upper echelons that Moscow was to be abandoned and everyone was meant to flee, but they failed to let the people know. So the people on the street started to see papers being burnt, cars leaving, and an all outright Mm. panic. I just, if I may, I very quickly make a comment on the burning of papers Mm -hmm. story that that Artemov told because it's true but quite rightly Stalin gets a horrific press and there's no doubt he was an absolutely um, tyrant tyrannical mass murderer in the first rank Mm -hmm. you know it's a toss up between him and Mao Zedong as to who's who's got the bigger butcher's bill but yeah he was an awful person but it must be said, when that happened, that the people in Moscow began to believe that the government was going to desert them mm-hmm. and, and abandon Moscow, and panic started to... Stalin said, and he went public in saying, and he stuck to it, I'm not going. Right. So they did relocate part of the government, mm-hmm. but Stalin never left Moscow to the extent that he insisted on the parade through Red Square that had been planned as the anniversary of the revolution, the October Revolution, Mm -hmm. that took place, which is effectively at the height of the battle. Right. So he stood on that podium to prove that he was there, and he took the salute, and they could hear the fighting. In the distance, yeah, they could. It wasn't right. that distant. Okay. Right. <laughs> Not, yeah, so, right. so I, I, mean, I just think it's worth making that point about Stalin as a war leader, because mm. people have this idea that, that you know he he somehow 
was just this tyrant who was out of touch, and he wasn't. He was, rightly or wrongly, I mean, he was in touch with people. So he did things which you can look at them and say, well, that was really cynical, like reopening the churches, mm -hmm. reintroducing ranks into the army. So instead of comrade, you started to have to call someone sir and general and all of that. In the in the the height of the battle, an order is received in the UK for a vast quantity of gold braid, right? From from the Soviet for Union. the ranks, yeah, because they're going back to having their shoulder boards and all of that. So he's not insensitive to mm. uh, to, to to the mood of the people. So that's that. One of the other incredible things at this time was the mass relocation and rapid relocation of industry from Western Russia over to the East. Late, late in the, in the Barbarossa, it sort of becomes potentially a war of attrition. And you can't war, win a war of attrition uh, unless you are outproducing the enemy. So well, there's the, the famous line, the war is won on the factory line, well, right? Well, that's right. The, the, the factories are the front line. And if the factories, not only, you have to think about it in terms of, you know, the sort of the win becomes the, the loss as well. So if the factories had not been relocated, they wouldn't only have lost control of those factories, the Germans would have gained control of those factories and of their output. That's an important aspect of the relocation of Soviet industry is that it's also a policy of denying Industry Denying industry to, to the Germans. To, to the Germans. It, it, it's, a, it's a variation on scorched earth. Mm. And the variation is, yes, absolutely extraordinary. They dismantle these factories and put them on trains. And the trains look almost like a continuous train. Of oh, just <laughs> continuous just, stream. Just one long train <laughs> just butted up against the next train heading east. And within days so they have um, you know plenty of uh, recorded instances where the factories are producing weaponry before the roof goes on the people wow. who are who have been moved with the factories are literally literally living in holes in the ground yeah so there's about 25 million workers yeah, that had got moved and, and, That's... and they're not being moved to towns that are equipped they're being moved to places and there's a little committee that is set up to come up with names for these new places because they don't exist they're they're moving them to safety and one town is actually called no name because they run out of names <laughs> the then. committee had run out of yeah, ideas yeah so that's an extraordinary um, sort of achievement and, and, and fundamental to their ability to stay in the war. Now we'll move across to the Japanese surprise attack of Pearl Harbor, which often gets said that the US was completely unprepared for. Now did any of the interviewees you met talk to this feeling of being unprepared? I know that Robert Erkin was there. Yeah, Robert w was one of the people that I interviewed who was in the armed forces before the war. So he was a sailor who was at Pearl Harbor when the attack came in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, he, but it's interesting because he, his recollection is consistent with the stories that you hear about how unprepared people were, that he saw the planes coming in and he said to his buddy, oh, they're exercising again. 
And then they saw the bombs starting to fall and said, man, man, this is not an exercise. We've so, got to get to our stations. Yeah. 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 So, so I, I mean, I think that the, they were unprepared. And the question is, should they have been prepared? The war was not a surprise to the Americans. The surprise was that the attack fell on Pearl Harbor. They were expecting the Japanese to attack the Philippines. But Hitler is then to have said that the US will not be a military threat until the 60s or 70s. And at the beginning of the war, the US Army was actually ranked 18th behind Czechoslovakia. There's much discourse about the, you know, the, the manufacturing achievements of the US, to go back on what we were just speaking about. But the sheer staggering number that you can go from 100,000 enlisted men in 41 to 14.9 million. Picture a soldier. Just picture a soldier. Because people go, oh, you know, they produce this many tanks and this many. 14.9 million, that's a lot of pairs of trousers. It's a lot of shirts. It's a lot of socks. It absolutely is. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, you can't do that. It doesn't matter whether you're the USA or who you are. You can't do that unless you gear up your nation's entire manufacturing capability to supporting that ambition, the ambition which Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. Other leaders, other leaders, if they had been in the White House instead of Roosevelt, would have said, well, we have to take control of the economy and we have to... What Roosevelt did was to say, we live in this type of a capitalist democracy, we must work with these people. And he called in all of the leaders of industry. Mm -hmm. He made it work by putting them in charge of the different committees. Mm -hmm. And, and even taking arch enemies like Knudsen uh, and absolutely. Ford against yeah, just each other. A, just or... who he thought was the, were the best people. It didn't matter whether they were for or against him. They had to be against Hitler and, 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 and against you know, the Japanese. Having done that, there was one important thing which he had to do, and we still live with its consequences. Mm -hmm. After the First World War, in which the United States had done something similar, they'd gone from being... Uh, basically subscribers entirely to the Monroe Doctrine to getting involved in a war in Europe. And they set up this in a similar way to send an enormous army where they didn't previously have an army and to have those guys equipped and all of that sort of thing. And so American manufacturing geared up and it, and it did the job. But as soon as the war was over, all of the people who'd done that were in trouble. And the, literally... Factories were dismantled or just fell into rack and ruin. So what happened in the 30s, and mm -hmm. certainly after Pearl Harbor, is manufacturing said, well, we can't do that again. So they got a, a guarantee okay. that if they geared up to supply the U.S. military, mm -hmm. they would continue to get orders after the war, that they could continue to be in business. So you look at some of the plant that was built, Mm -hmm. enormous plant that was built, necessarily they wanted a guarantee that they would that still be able to would, produce. They would still have a business after the war, and they got that. And that's why in his parting address as president, mm -hmm. Dwight Eisenhower coined the phrase and warned people against the industrial military complex. Okay. And there's the man who was Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, became president on a Republican ticket. Mm -hmm. But he saw that this 
He had, saw the problem that was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, it, it had become and it remains a, a, a sort of state within a state and, and there are problems associated with that. But it's difficult to imagine how else the USA could have responded to the events of December 1941 other than by making all of that and a- accepting all of that and going with all of that. And uh, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of Pearl Harbor, they, they w- were concerned that they would be coming under attack, that mm-hmm. uh, particularly on the West Coast, so these big factories get built and uh, Jack Warner, major studios in Hollywood, right? Yeah. And north of Hollywood, you get the aviation industry starting to really expand. To ramp up. So there are these huge factories going up there. And Jack Warner was concerned that from the air, these huge Hollywood sound stages looked like factories. And so he had the roof of his studio painted with an enormous arrow pointing north and the word Boeing Pointing so, directly to just, where... Yeah, so just in case the Japanese bombers came over, they'd go, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> See whether they were deceived or yeah. whether they thought, oh. Well, just back on that notion of being prepared that we're going through in, in terms of Pearl Harbor, mm. what do you think best prepared you to write this story? Was it your own interest in history and your already vast knowledge of, of the subject matter, or was it the fact you were just told to go for it. Yeah, I really didn't have vast knowledge <laughs> when I was told to go for it. Um, I, can't, I can't say that I was completely ignorant of the topic, and I certainly wasn't completely disinterested in it. You would imagine someone of my generation, my parents' war, and it ended, um, well, <laughs> why pretend otherwise? It ended the year before I was born. Mm. It was not something where I had to go, oh, God, really? I don't want to do that. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, fine. I'm happy to find out more about it. But um, that's when the process really began. And I, I, you know, what I what I now know about it is really what I've substantially is what I've the knowledge that I've acquired since then, both by research in in terms of reading, and which is my very great fortune, of course, by the interviews that I've conducted, not just for this, but but for other shows where the interviewees have actually been significantly notable academics and and writers Mm. on the topic. Well, we'll wrap this up for today, Michael. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you. In next week's episode, we'll look at the opening of the Second Front in Europe, D-Day. The Soviet Union's Operation Bagration and Japan's Operation Ichigo. You've been listening to Chronicle's History Making Podcast. I'm Dan Jobson, and I've been talking with Michael Cove, creator, narrator, and writer of The Price of Empire. You've been listening to a Chronicle Podcast. 